Thank you, Matt, for giving us songs about Jesus this morning. And Jesse, thank you for that powerful focus as we took communion and a reminder that this story that we inhabit, these events that we learn about, these were real events. And we not only hear about them, we not only think about them, we experience them with all of our senses. Thank you for that reminder. And it's really in that vein that we turn to our passage today, which is in John chapter 11. If you'd like to find that part of your Bible, uh, there in your Bible, go about two-thirds of the way through to the New Testament, and you'll be looking for the Gospel of John. Now, the New Testament begins with four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke. The fourth of those will be John, and then uh, we'll be in John chapter 11. And this is an event that John records for us so that we can experience the same thing that they experienced. And you can uh, be there and hear and feel and taste and touch and experience exactly what this week Martha experienced. Uh, Tony, our minister, is gone for at least a month of Sundays. And so uh, various ones of us are helping to give the message. Uh, and so continue to pray for he and for Nikki and their travels and their time away. Uh, but this, uh, during this next several weeks, we're going through a series And the series is simply asking, who is Jesus? It's based on a question that Jesus asked the disciples, which we talked about last week, where Jesus turned to them and said, who do you say that I am? And you remember Peter's answer. There in the the tension between the Roman world in which Peter grew up, that world that said that the peace of Rome was a product of the power of Rome that the emperor was the one who had ultimate control over all reality, that the emperor, who had claimed himself to be the son of a god, was the one who really held control. That was intention against the older Jewish story, that God is the one who controls reality, and he would send his anointed one, his king, into the world to make the world right again. And it's that anointed one who would be called the supreme power over the universe, the Lord, the one who had ultimate control of all reality. And it was in that tension that Jesus looks at the disciples and says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. Well, in the same way, as we talked about last week, that Peter lived in that tension, you and I live in a tension between different worldviews. We live in a period of time where it might be tempting to think that those who understand and control science are the ones who control reality, that science is not just the study of what is real, but it is actually the manipulation or the, the ability to manufacture what is real. Some of you may be tempted to think that information technology and technology in general is what controls reality and those who can write our programs and make our apps and create this new metaverse uh, are the ones who control reality. You may be tempted to think that those who have political power are those who can control reality. We live in the tension between that and this older story. And so just like Peter, Jesus could look at us and ask, who do you say that I am? Now, is politics or science or technology bad? Of course not. I am a physician. I work in the realm of science. I happen to work for the state of Alaska within the realm of politics. And I can tell you, I use the Internet every day and even this morning have spent some time using that technology. These are all things that are in and of themselves 
goods and can be used for good. But I, for one, choose to stand with Peter. If you were to ask me who is it that has control over all reality, I stand with Peter and say it is Jesus who is the Messiah, the supreme power over all the universe, the one we call Lord. What about you? Well, that was Peter's answer last week. This week, we turn to John chapter 11, and we get to hear Martha's answer to this very same question. Who do you say that Jesus is? And so look there in John chapter 11. It's important uh, for me that you see this not just on the screen, but you're able to find where this story is, because you, like others, may want to go back and read this again. And I want you to know where it is. John chapter 11, and the very first verse begins in John 11, With this statement, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany. This was just a few miles from Jerusalem. It's the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. Now this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. This morning in Bible class, we learned about that. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So we begin with a a focus, really, a broad focus on a family. And it's two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, and their brother, Lazarus. Lazarus is the one who is sick. Now we're going to follow through the rest of this uh, chapter in the next few verses. I'd just like to go through and look at Martha's response in what happens next. But you need to see it in the context of a family. So Mary and Martha have a brother who lays sick. Now this is a very serious illness. There are many things in the first century that they could do. They were quite advanced in their medical capabilities at that time. But just like today, there were people who got sick and had an illness that was so profound that they would die. Lazarus had one of those types of illness. We don't know exactly what it is, but he was, he was about to die. And so Mary and Martha say a prayer. Now, it's a physical prayer. It was actually sent as word to Jesus to say... The one you love is is sick. So what do we know about Mary and Martha, specifically with Martha? There are two other times that Martha shows up in Scripture. One of those you can read about in Luke chapter 10. And this is the time when Martha hosts a a group of people who uh, uh, come to the house to learn from Jesus. And so Jesus comes and his disciples are sitting around and Martha is the host, and she's uh, preparing things for everyone who has come to learn from Jesus, and she gets upset because Mary decides to do the unthinkable. As a woman in the first century, she goes and sits down with the disciples and is listening to Jesus, and that makes Martha upset. She, you come to find out, is the event planner. Martha is the one who makes things happen. She's the one who is serving the entire group. And she goes to Jesus and says, Lord, tell my sister to get in here in the kitchen and help me serve. And Jesus looks at her and says, Martha, Martha, this endearing double name. Martha, Martha, you are troubled by many things and weighed down by serving. But Mary has chosen the better option. And it will not be taken from her. And so Jesus has to give Martha this course correction. The second event that we learn about Martha is actually in John 12, the chapter after the events that we read here today. And there again, Martha is hosting a dinner. 
Now, this dinner is probably at another person's house. We think this is Simon's house. Simon was a Pharisee. He might have had leprosy at one time, and Jesus healed. And Jesus comes to the house there for dinner. Lazarus is going to be at this dinner. And, and so the family is sitting around there enjoying dinner. And again, Martha is the one who serves. And that's the dinner where Mary comes in. You remember with the expensive perfume? And she is so emotionally taken by what Jesus has done for her that she pours this ointment on him, on his head, probably on his feet too, and wets his feet with her tears and uses her hair to dry it. You read about that in John 12. But what you may miss, if you're going too fast, is that guess who is serving the meal at that dinner? It was Martha. And what we learn about Martha is that Martha is the the hostess. She is the event planner. She is the one who makes things happen. If Jesus were the one speaking this morning in our service, you know where Martha would be? Martha would be the one outside making sure that there were enough seats for everyone, that the temperature was correct in here. She is the one who would have been here first and would be the last to leave. She's the one who would be making sure that the potluck, that no doubt we would have afterwards if Jesus were here, that everything is warmed and set out fine. Martha would be that person. She is not able to sit down because there is still work to do. That's her personality. And though we only see her pop up a few times in scripture, there is no question that that is the personality of Martha. And it's helpful to understand that, to understand what happens next. They send word to Jesus and tell him that Lazarus is sick. Now we find out that when Jesus hears this, he, he makes a statement. He says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for the God's glory that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now we're told that Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. That's verse 5. And you would expect, when you hear that, since Jesus loved Mary and Martha, you would expect the very next line to say, so he got up and he went to take care of Lazarus. But that's not what it says. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there Uh, two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Now the disciples are a bit alarmed at this. They don't know about Lazarus and what's going on behind the scenes. And they say, Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you and you're trying to go back. And so Jesus has to spend a little time talking to them about how there's a time for everything. And now is the time for us to go back to Judea. So after he explains this to them, he said to them, He went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. Now, you may not catch this in English, but there's a little bit of play on words here. The word sleep in Greek is the word koimao, which you might hear in that koimao. It sounds a little bit like coma. It's where we get our term, coma. And if uh, if you ever get a chance to tour in Greece and have a good tour guide, they will tell you that if you pass a a cemetery, they will say, you know, that's not called a place where people die or where the dead people are. It's the koimaterion. It's where we get our term cemetery. The cemetery is not a place where you put people when they die. It's where you put people when they are asleep. And that's the understanding there in the first world. It was dishonoring to say you put a, a person died. You would say that person is asleep. And it's interesting that Jesus takes that In fact, every time that Jesus is talking about someone who has died, he always says that the person, he says they're not dead, they're only asleep. He sees death as not a final end or a disintegration of a person. 
It is just the same as sleep. So next time you pass a cemetery, you can you can say, shh, there's a lot of people sleeping over there, <laughs> you know. And that was that's what Jesus said. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Well, the disciples, just like you, did not understand the euphemism there. And they said, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get better. And then Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples, of course, thought he meant natural sleep. So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. But for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let's go to him now. So here's where we learn that Lazarus is dead. Now, they're quite a distance away. It's going to take several days for them to get to Bethany. And then it's Thomas. I left this in here, and I'm glad John did too. <laughs> he just says, then Thomas, he picks up all the disciples, Thomas, who is known as Didymus, that's the word for twin. Yeah, Thomas was a twin. He said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. It's important that you see that because you probably came to know of Thomas as doubting Thomas. Uh, maybe you should think of him as a brave Thomas who says, well, I'm sticking with him. If he's going to go there and die, we're going to die with him. That's the same Thomas. So on his arrival, now uh, that they have come to Bethany, uh, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Now, this is important to note that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were probably of a well-known family. Uh, they were likely a wealthy family, and they were known by many people. And so there were many people who came from Jerusalem, many of the Jews that came to their house, and a funeral uh, there would be quite an event that lasted days, maybe a week. I mean, it was, it was where many people gathered and mourned together. And so many people had come to comfort them. And then verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she, remember the event planner, went out to meet him. But Mary stayed back at home. So Martha, here, we see that personality again. She's the one to accommodate everyone who has come to comfort them, everyone who has come to be a part of the funeral. And when she hears that Jesus himself has come, he's not come into the, the place yet where Lazarus lived. But when he arrived in town, Martha, the greeter, runs out to meet him. And then this is what she says next. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Which is a statement of faith and a true statement. But I know that even now God will give whatever you ask. You see, Martha and Mary and even Lazarus knew something about Jesus. They had seen what he's able to do. Martha would have seen people who were at the point of death pulled back to life by Jesus. She would have seen people who were paralyzed, standing up and walking again. Martha may have been there uh, and been able to eat some of the bread and fish that Jesus made and divided for the thousands and thousands of people. Martha would have known people like the blind man. In fact, the beauty of the miracle is that Martha not only saw the blind man, he saw her too after Jesus healed him. Martha would have known him. Uh, Martha would have known people who had been oppressed by demonic forces released by Jesus. In fact, there is some debate about whether or not Mary, her sister, was actually Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had been cast out. We don't know exactly, but Martha certainly would have known people from whom Jesus had cast out demons. Martha knew what Jesus was capable of. 
And that's why she called Jesus. And that's why she makes this statement, which is really a statement of faith. If you had been here, he would not have died. And then she throws in this little request. But I know that even now, God will give whatever you ask. Would you just say a prayer for him? I know God will give whatever you ask him. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. This is a bit of a spoiler alert. (laughs) Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Now, to understand what Martha says next, it's important to know the prevailing perspectives on the resurrection at this time period. There in the Roman and Greek world, there were basically three different competing perspectives on whether or not a person really could come back to life again. There was the the older uh, Epicurean view that said when a person dies, that's it. They're annihilated. They disintegrate. In fact, they would use the word atoms. They had a little different understanding of atoms like you would have had, but it's not too far off, in which they said all of us are made up of these tiny little particles made of atoms, and we live our life, we have our experience, and then when we die, all of these atoms just break apart and then go back and enjoin the rest of the atoms that are flowing through the universe. And after death, there's nothing else. There is no soul. There is no afterlife. And that was a prevailing view of the Epicureans. In fact, some of the Jewish Sadducees picked up on that. And there was a parallel belief even among some of the Jewish people of the day. Well, there were other Greeks and then eventually Romans who said, no, the body may deteriorate and return to the dust, but the soul doesn't die. The soul will live on after death. In fact, when a person dies, their body may die, but their soul is taken away in this disembodied state to join this spirit realm and there be with the other uh, spiritual creatures and there live, you know, perhaps forever with uh, in this spirit form. And that's what Plato taught. That's what Socrates taught. That's what was passed on through the Greeks and many of the Romans picked that up. And to some extent, uh, some of you would say, well, I, I thought that's what happened. That's kind of what I believe. And to the extent that you say that's what I believe, I know that you are a good product of ancient Greek philosophy. Uh, But that's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, That's what many in our culture have adopted, but that's not what is stated in the Bible. There was a third view that not many people had, but a, a few would say, well, there are some human beings who are special. In fact, these are the heroes of old. You would hear stories like the story of Achilles, who was a man, died, but was resurrected in an embodied state with a body and was able to live on. Asclepius, the one who, those of you in the medical profession know his staff is the one that the snake, you know, wraps around. Uh, that's the Asclepius, was a man who Zeus got unhappy with and killed, but then he was uh, raised again by one of the other gods. And so he comes back to life. So there are these special ones the Greeks would say, who could come back in an embodied state. But those were the prevailing ideas about resurrection at the time. In contrast to that was an older story, an older view. And this is the one that that Martha would have had. It was the view that came, you you see it most clearly in the book of Daniel. In fact, uh, Daniel chapter 12, I don't have this on a slide, but let me just read to you this This passage from Daniel chapter 12, 1 and 2. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. 
And so within the Jewish way of thinking and passed down through the years, they came to develop this idea that a person could be raised and would be raised at the last day. A person who was asleep in the dust would wake up again and come back in this embodied state, meaning they get a new body. Once animated, maybe by the self, now it's to be animated by the spirit, but it's very much a physical resurrection. And if you understand those competing views, then you'll understand what Martha says next. When Jesus looks at her and says, you understand that your brother will rise again, Martha says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You see how she's pointing back to what you read in Daniel. And then Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? I've always pictured this scene as if Jesus takes Martha by the shoulders. When Martha says, I know, I know he will raise again at the last day, I almost picture Jesus looking her in the eyes and again saying twice, Martha, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even if he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then again, looking at her, he says, do you believe this? And here it is. He's asked her the question, what's Martha's answer to the question, who is Jesus? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah. Or you remember that word is Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Did you hear she gives the same answer that Peter gave? You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. And that's her answer. And so the question is not just for Martha, but for you. What do you believe? Who do you believe that he is? Well, we'll talk about this more next week when we talk about John's answer to this question. But one of the beautiful things about the book of John is that John will give you many examples like this where Jesus will say something that is just unbelievable. I am the resurrection. But then he'll do something that's undeniable. I am the bread of life. And then he'll make bread for everybody. I am the light of the world. You know, it's an unbelievable statement. But then he'll give a blind man sight again. And here he says, I am the resurrection and the life. So he already gave you the spoiler alert. Guess what he does next? We find out that Martha then goes and gets Mary. Mary is with the other Jews. They're mourning together in the house, and they all come out. Mary and the rest of the Jews come out to see Jesus. And when Mary, verse 32, reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said the same thing that Martha had said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. And don't miss what comes next. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus, seeing Martha uh, suffering, seeing Mary weeping at his feet, seeing the other Jews who had come around weeping, we're told Jesus wept. The shortest verse in your English version of the Bible says that the God of this universe 
the one who is responsible for all creation at that moment was brokenhearted and, and wept. To say exactly what broke his heart is only speculation. I can't tell you. What I can tell you is that it happened. And you need to know that. And you need to know that when you feel the weight of pain of loss and when you are mourning and when you are weeping or around others who are, you need to know that God in heaven weeps. And that's what we see happen here, even though he knows what will happen next. Jesus weeps, and then the other Jews, seeing him weeping, say, See how he loved him. See how much Jesus loved Lazarus. But some of them said, Could not he who have opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? They knew about what Jesus had done. So when Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb, it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance, and he said, Take away the stone. But Lord said Martha. Now remember Martha and her personality. Uh, She, hearing him say, remove the stone, is going to say, wait a minute, that wasn't part of the agenda. That wasn't part of the plan. I don't have the ointment and fragrances. And so she turns to Jesus and says, by this time there is a bad odor for he's been there for four days. I'm really glad that John left this in so that reading this 2,000 years later, we would not be uh, subject to the temptation to think, that they are going to believe what happens next because they don't understand what death really looks like. You know, there's a tendency to be a little bit prejudiced for our own time and our own understanding and come to think that, well, 2,000 years ago, they didn't understand science like we understand. They didn't understand life and death like we understand it. And sure, they'll think that people can come back from the dead because they, they don't know the science behind life and death. This little phrase is a reminder. They absolutely knew what death looked like. And they knew what life looked like. And they knew that four days after putting a body in a grave, without special chemicals to prevent the deterioration, the body would stink. That's what death smells like, the deterioration and the necrosis of the body. And so she brings that up. But then Jesus turns to her and says, in a corrective statement, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looks up and says a prayer. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. I've always imagined here that Jesus looks over and winks at Martha and says, is, is this what you were wanting me to do, <laughs> you know, when you asked me to pray? And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. Now catch next. It says his hands and his feet were wrapped with strips of linen and the cloth was around his face. When he came out, he did not come out full stride. This was not a laser light show with the smoke and the music and then da da da, you know, and then Lazarus comes out in full stride. He's wrapped up, hands and feet, with these linen and he can't see. His face is covered with his grave cloth. He came out, you know, hopping out of the grave. And that's why Jesus appropriately next says, take off the grave clothes. And let him go. And Lazarus came back to life. Well, that's what really happened. And you just got to experience it. Maybe in your own mind, you could see and smell 
taste and touch what was happening. But what's the take-home point? What's the message for us? There are actually three that I can think of that come right out of the text. The first is the reason John puts this event in this gospel for you is to show you the power of God as displayed through Jesus. Meaning, it's so that you, when you put this side by side by all the other events that you read in John, he puts this event here almost as a climax event to say, do you realize who Jesus is? He is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, the second reason that I can think of that this story is preserved and and a take-home point for this is for you to realize that the message given to Martha is the message for you too. Uh, Which one of you, if you come to know who Jesus really is, which one of you would not say the same prayer that Mary and Martha said for Lazarus? How many of you would not say that for the person in your life right now who is sick? and possibly approaching death. How many of you know someone who is suffering some type of ailment or in the slow decline of a form of dementia or someone who is suffering from substance abuse or a mental illness or some other tragedy or oppression or injustice? How many of you, if you came to know who Jesus really is, would not in a minute say the same prayer that Martha and Mary say for Lazarus. Lord, the one you love, the person you made, the one for whom you died is sick. We're in the midst of a pandemic that just seems to go on and on and on. How many of you, if you knew who Jesus really was and the power in his hands, have not already said the prayer, Lord, the world for which you died is sick. And people suffer with the expectation that he will answer that prayer. I think that's why this story is preserved for us, is a reminder that when you say that prayer, you're saying it to the Lord of the universe. And when you say, Lord, I, uh, the, the people, the person that you love is sick, you can hear Jesus' reassuring statement. You understand this does not have to end in death. And you say, I, I realize that, but I, I'm not asking for something to happen in the future, something way down the road, some resurrection at the end of time. I'm asking you to intervene now. And Jesus looks at you, and he takes you by the shoulders and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live, even if the body dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And you're meant to hear this question that Jesus asked Martha as if it were posed to you. Do you believe this? Now, the third reason that I think this passage is preserved, and maybe a third take-home point, is for you to realize what Martha realized. And that is that resurrection is not just some future event. You know, there's a tendency to think that the resurrection of the body is something that, if you knew the date, you could put it on the calendar and prepare for. Certainly, Martha felt that way. 
you know, if we just knew the date of the resurrection, I would put it on the calendar, we would have the event planned, we would have enough space for everybody, Martha would be the one, first one from the grave, would be in the kitchen making breakfast, saying, rise and shine, you know, time, time to eat. She's the one who would be the event planner. But Jesus looks at her and says, you realize that to believe in the resurrection is not to believe in a future event. It is to believe in a person who has the power to remake all people to be alive again. It is not to believe just in an event, it is to believe in the changing of people. And if that's true, it means that the resurrection is not just a future event, it is something that is being affected now. To follow Jesus is to begin that process of being reborn, remade now. And that's what happens in the life of every single person who chooses to follow Jesus. There's a sense in which the story you read about Lazarus is your story. It's the same thing. What Lazarus experienced in a physical death and coming back to life is what every one of you who has chosen to follow Christ, it's what every one of you goes through. When you choose to be baptized and you go into the water, we're told that that baptism is a death. It's a burial. And in that buried state, you hear Jesus say to you, calling your name, come forth. And you come up out of that grave, remade, renewed. The story of Lazarus is your story. And it's not a story that just ends there at the water. Of course, following Christ involves so much more, so much more to understand, so much more to do, so much more to change and to grow. But it all begins with a small kernel of faith. Not in an act or a work, but in who Jesus is. As the one who can remake you and raise you from the dead. Yes, Martha says, I believe that you are the Messiah, the anointed one, come to change the world. You are the sovereign power over the universe. You are the son of God. Well, the best example that I could think of that gives you a picture of that whole story actually comes from an old novel. And, uh, and the novel was written by uh, Dostoevsky over 150 years ago called Crime and Punishment. Have you ever heard that story? Some of you, anybody read that story? It's, I'm, I'm not a great novel reader. I didn't start reading it until I was an adult. Uh, but it is, I can tell you, one of the best novels ever written. Now, I have been warned by literature lovers that to give away a great story is like one of the greatest public sins you could ever commit. So a little bit of a spoiler alert here. (laughs) I want to tell you about this novel that Dostoevsky wrote called Crime and Punishment, but I won't give it all away. This is one of the greatest novels ever written, and it's it's a psychological thriller. Uh, There are two things that even people that know a lot about this book, Crime and Punishment, there's two things that most people don't know about this book. The first is that the title in Russian, for those of you that can read the Cyrillic uh, letters there and sound that out, that word for crime in Russian is actually the word for trespass. The name of the book is actually uh, not just crime committed and its punishment, but the word trespass. It's the same word used in the Russian Bible for, you know, sometimes when referring to sin, like in Romans 5, the word trespass. So when writing this, Dostoevsky said the book was about not just crime and punishment, but it has a double meaning, could also mean sin and its punishment. And that's what the book ends up being about. But the second thing that you may not know about the book is that it's a bit of a memoir which talks about 
a person who is an atheist becoming a full, fully devoted follower of Christ, becoming a Christian. The story follows a young man who, in his college years, commits a double murder. And that's the part the book basically opens with. But that's not what makes the book so engaging and a thriller. What makes the book thrilling is the rest of how he responds to the rest of the book, how he responds to that murder, how he first uh, tries to hide it from others, and then he tries to rationalize it away, and then he's pursued by, you know, the inspector who keeps following these clues and is convinced that he did it but can't quite prove it. And, and time and time again throughout the book, you know, he's almost Raskolnikov, the young college student, is almost caught He starts to rationalize away what he does and argues for what he does as being something that was good for society. And what you see develop in him is what all of you who are in law enforcement will recognize is the criminal mentality in which he comes to believe that he can do whatever he wants, whatever he feels at the moment, without regard to how it affects other people or without regard to a higher power, including God. And so Raskolnikov, the protagonist, is a atheist. But at the end of the story, and here's a little bit of the spoiler alert, He eventually confesses to the crime, and he's put in prison. And while he's in prison, he becomes a Christian. And do you know what convinces him to confess to the crime and then become a Christian? Well, I I won't give away how he ends up confessing, because that's part of the thrill of the story. But I will give away this part. It was a young, lovely woman named Sonia, herself oppressed by poverty and the tragedies of St. Petersburg back in Russia. It was that young lady who introduced Raskolnikov to God. And there's a point at the end of the story where talking about the hero of the story, the one who confessed to the crimes and then eventually becomes a Christian, at the end, Dostoevsky says, but he had risen again, talking about his conversion. He knew it, he felt it in all his being, but that's the beginning of a new story. The story of the gradual renewal of a man, the story of his gradual regeneration, of his passing from one world into the other, of his initiation into a new unknown life. And you hear in that the description of resurrection. Well, there's a point where Dostoevsky has his characters read a story to illustrate what this means. And some people have said that this book is a memoir that Dostoevsky wrote. He wrote it when he came back from Siberia after being imprisoned himself in Siberia. And some people say this was his story, his conversion. And do you know which passage of scripture that he ends up quoting in this book? In fact, he not only quotes it or refers to it, there's several biblical references throughout the story, but there's one point where the murderer asks this young woman to read him a story that he remembers being in Scripture. And do you know what that story is? It's the story of Lazarus from John chapter 11. And that story that you just read from John chapter 11 is is repeated almost in its entirety here towards the end of the book. And what was Dostoevsky's point? His point is, that's what happens to all of us. What Martha heard, his point to us, what Martha heard is what is meant to be heard by even those who have committed the worst trespasses, the worst of sins. And that Lazarus's story is your story, is that to follow Christ represents a renewal, a rebirth, 
To believe in the resurrection is not just to believe in some future event. It is to believe in a person who is the resurrection. And so we close with that very question that Jesus poses to Martha. When Jesus looks at her and says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even if he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And the question asked to Martha is now asked to you, do you believe this? I hope that you do. And even if you don't yet, I hope something said this morning or something that you read here in Scripture has at least given you something to think about. And so if this is the time that you would like to become a Christian, to go through that whole process of the death, the burial, the resurrection uh, through baptism, to become a follower of Christ, for the hope that was Lazarus's to become your hope as well for you to follow Jesus. This is a good time to do that today, to make a decision to follow Jesus. And if you followed him for years and years, I hope that something said this morning has been a reminder of why you choose to stand with Peter and now stand with Martha and point to Jesus and say, I believe he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Let's think about these things now while we stand and sing this song together.